good morning again. I know in your bulletin it says that I'm going to read the scripture and then I'm going to give the sermon, but I always incorporate the scripture into the sermon. So instead, let me introduce myself and then pray and then we'll get to it. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, I am Brad Sineker. Uh, I used to be a pastor. I am now a hospice chaplain with the University of Rochester, specifically in Ontario and Yates counties. And so, but my family, uh, my parents go here, and my family is a big part of RCS as well. And so, it's uh, my pleasure to come and speak with you. I've done that many times before. And so, uh, let's take a moment and pray, and then we'll look together at God's Word. Our Father in heaven, we do thank you, as we've already said, for this day and for your many blessings, that we can come here freely and worship you, learn from you, and God, we hope, uh, as was just mentioned, have some of that run over and, uh, and be shared and given to those around us, especially that are in need. Uh, Father, again, do be with uh, Pastor Savaggio and his family as they're away. Keep them safe, keep them healthy, help them to be uh, restored. And again, guide us as we look at your word this morning, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Carpe diem. I think, therefore I am. You deserve a break today. Just do it. Look out for number one. These sayings, these slogans encourage the independent spirit of America. Especially here in the States, we are a fiercely independent people. And especially in the North, that kind of old, if you know it, Yankee mentality that we are the ones to pull up our, our own bootstraps and pull ourselves up, to look out for our interests. We are the best ones to do that. Coupled with that, at the same time, we are told that all truth is relative, except the truth that all truth is relative. You can think about that, but uh, we'll move on. What this means is that in our independent streak, and the fact that only we know what is right and wrong, we have come to a day where we each play God. We each decide what's right and wrong. We each decide what's best for ourselves. And because of that break so long ago that was with, with England where we pioneered that independent spirit, we are all out for ourselves. When you mix in the cultural pandemonium of today's relativistic and pluralistic culture, it gets to be a little bit chaotic. And yet, for all our fine philosophies, for all our great attempts at utopia, I don't see less and less crime in the newspapers. I don't see less and less hatred. Like most of you, I tend to see more violence and perversion. As Isaiah said long ago, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Where do we go in a day of increasing violence and terrorism? Of a continual slide into moral depravity that includes church denominations? Of the unstoppable information overload? Where do we turn to for guidance and assurance and wisdom and peace amidst the swirling storms of our day, including a global pandemic? Now, each of us know that my answer is probably going to be God's word. But what about specifically? What, what about when you say, I'm going to open up God's word, and I'm like, I'm, but I'm not sure where to turn. I believe that, oh, we have heard the words so often repeated, and some of you know them by heart. They were perhaps the first 
long scripture passage you ever learned, one of the most treasured passages of scripture, still known for its wonderful imagery and ability to calm the most anxious of hearts, is as relevant today as it ever was, Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is so well known that if you've ever heard a psalm, you've probably heard this one. If you've ever heard it sung or read, it was probably this psalm. If you've ever wanted to comfort another person or you've had someone comfort you, it was probably with this psalm. It's so well known, it's so often used that each of us have our own imagery of what the green pastures and the flowing waters and the dark valley of death and the oil running over and the cup and the table, like we each have our own pictures of that, right? As we read the psalm, each of us go there in our minds of what that looks like. David wrote perhaps one of the most beautifully illustrated poems ever. This psalm was one I read in college a lot. It was uh, usually right before I had an exam. It was kind of like my nerve pill, right? And I imagine that I used it quite a bit my junior year fall semester, a week in which I had decided that semester to take 18 credits, so six full classes. And the first five finals were in a row. And then I found out my grandfather died, and then I had to take the last one. And so, so Monday night was Western Civ, Tuesday morning was quantitative analysis, Tuesday afternoon was computer science, Wednesday morning was business management, Wednesday afternoon was business law, during which I had a nosebleed. Actually, I had to go to Dr. Sparks, our business law professor, and say, I can feel it coming, I need to go get something to stop it. And so I went to the bathroom, shoved toilet paper in my nose, and with toilet paper dangling out of my nose, wrote the rest of the exam. That was the fifth of the five in a row. Then the next day, I came back from lunch and left on my answering machine. I was told that the most important, or the person I revered the most, perhaps thought as the most godly and wise at that time for me was my grandfather, that he had died. This is right before Christmas, about 30 years ago. And I still had to take my sixth and hardest final the next day. After that, in the late afternoon, I then had to drive across Ohio from Pennsylvania in the midst of one of those storms where it couldn't decide if it wanted to rain or sleet or snow, and then eventually head up into Michigan for his funeral. But when I got there, part of that service was Psalm 23. And this is that psalm that unites us. It binds us. It bound in that moment me and my grandfather. It gave me peace knowing that he had faith in Jesus Christ and that we shared this beautiful passage as important in our lives. Now, I know that we each have the translation that we learned this passage in, right? Some, some of you are here, and you learned it in probably the King James. Maybe some of you are old enough you learned it in the Latin. No, not quite that old. Okay. 
But some of you probably did learn it in the King James. Some of you probably let it re- uh, learned it in the RSV. Some in the NIV. Maybe some now today in the ESV. And because of that, I'm not going to read it to you in any of those translations. Instead, I want to read it to you from the original Hebrew as I translated it several years ago. And there's a reason I want to do this. The words are going to sound a little different. The meaning is all still the same. But I want what you to do is I don't want you to look at it in your Bible. I want you just to listen because I want it to spark. I want you to think about it as you hear it with just a little bit different wording. Psalm of David. Yahweh is tendering me. I lack not. In spring pastures he makes me lie down. Near waters of soothing he leads me. My whole being he restores. He guides me in the track of rightness to testify about his name. Even though I walk in the valley of deep darkness, I will not be afraid of evil since you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You furnish before me a table before the ones causing me distress. You anoint my head in oil. My cup is filled. Surely good and loving kindness shall pursue me all the days that I live. And I will return to the temple of the Lord forevermore. Now granted, a little bit different wording, right? Same idea, same overall point. But again, it is to kind of reawaken this psalm to us. Because sometimes we know it so well, we can almost forget what it's talking about. But immediately as we look at this first verse, in whatever passage that you're looking at it in, whether you're a Christian or you're not, we are confronted with this question. Is God indeed my shepherd? Is God your shepherd? Do I allow him to tender and take care of me like David talks about here? Or do I fight against his will and push against the staff by which he means me good? Am I like Jonah trying to escape because I don't want to go with his plan? Do I think as the sheep that I know better where to find the green grass than the shepherd does? Long ago when my two oldest sons were little, we lived in New Hampshire and we had a little sliding glass door onto the back deck, and we owned a Siberian husky named Nikita. Now, if you know anything about Siberian huskies, they are sled dogs, right? They are built to pull stuff and run. And so these little boys uh, back then would often forget to shut the door all the way, and Nikita would sneak out. And uh, while I am a runner, I am not that fast of a runner. And trying to catch her, trying to call her, once she was out, once she was loose, she was gone, right? And so we we would tell them, part of our caring for her, part of our tendering and taking care of her is, we got to remember, either she's got to be on a leash, right? Or we got to remember to shut the door, because then she'll just go. And if you know, you know, New Hampshire has high spots and low spots, so what she would do when she would escape, she would go and she would find the muddiest, grossest, thing, right? So that this beautiful, she was like the fashion model of her breed, thin, like low weight, but really beautiful, blue eyes, the nice fur, right? And then she'd come back like black, right? So I remember one day she came back and Wendy and I were like, it was late in the afternoon, maybe even into the evening. We were like, I'm not bathing her. I'm not bathing her. 
Because, you know, bathing her meant like going into the walk-in shower, like in your swimsuit and like fully bathing her while you're also basically, you know, taking a mud bath with her as well to get all this stuff off. So we decided, no, we're not doing it tonight. And so, uh, and so then that led to a lot of whining and complaining and, and her wanting to come in and, and we kept her in the garage. None of that would have happened if she had understood that part of our tendering and caring for her was to come when she was called or to stay in the house or to remain on the leash. This was part of our tendering and caring for her. And the same is true of the people who want to follow God. It's for our own good that he cares for us. It's for our own good that he, he calls us back to him when we start to stray. Because if we bolt and we go our own way, we will come back with blackened souls like she come back with blackened fur. And David says God's tendering, he says it's a pleasant thing. He lies us down in spring or green pastures. He leads us beside the soothing waters, restoring our soul. Now think of that imagery. So we're going to switch from the dog, now we're going to look at the sheep. Now imagine that you're a sheep or a lamb, right? Still or smooth waters like a babbling brook on a hot day, cool, fresh, clear, that's refreshing. Right? Green pastures, maybe with a little shade overhead, that's good eating. It's a comfortable place to lie down in. David, David doesn't say that, that God takes him to a stagnant pool filled with mosquitoes and green scum and snakes. He doesn't say he takes them to a class five raucous rapid in the mountains where just trying to cross could lead to your death. David says he takes me to pleasant places. He cares for me. He, he looks out for me. God offers this type of rest and refreshment as he guides our lives. He even mirrored that in the creation of the world, right? On that, on that seventh day, he took a rest. Now, he didn't need to. He was God. But that was the mirror for us that we need to. That we need that rest and that restoration. I am a trail runner. And some of you guys have known that from when I've been here before. And some of the most refreshing and restoration type times for me are when I'm in the mountains. In fact, if you ask my wife, if we're, if we're in the mountains... And then it comes to the day when we're going to leave the mountains. Like, I go from being in the best mood to going to being like a little kid having a fit. Right? Because in the mountains, I feel refreshed. I feel restored. The mountains of New Hampshire and Colorado, Wyoming, Montana that have had the chance to hike and to run in are so beautiful. We find Jesus doing the same thing. Not so much trail running, but, but hiking, walking, right? He would go up to the mountains and he would get restored he would get close to God and then he would come down in the valleys and he would minister to the people God gave us this earth not only to take care of it certainly we're called to do that but also to be restored in it our souls our lives need that restoration and it doesn't happen just from the creation that God gives us it also comes from his word David says in fact just as a shepherd guides a sheep in the path that it should go, God guides us in the track of righteousness, it says in his word. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. 
Now think of that. Think of God's word. There are certain sections of God's word that we turn to that kind of give us these, these overall frameworks and understanding of how to live life, like the Ten Commandments. Right? Now if we had several weeks, I would go through the whole Ten Commandments with you like I did the church at Webster, and I would tell you how they're not just ten statements and that's it. They're really like ten categories on jeopardy, right? And they include all these things that are enveloped in each one of them. And oftentimes we turn to things like the Ten Commandments because they give us a framework, a moral framework of how God wants us to live. Or look at the Sermon on the Mount, right? In a little bit, we'll pray the Lord's Prayer together. The Lord's Prayer is found there. Teachings on all types of other things are there, including the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. You've got the teachings of Paul, especially in Ephesians and Colossians, the second half of both of those books. He gives instructions for how parents and children should relate, and husbands and wives, and workers and employees, and so forth. Right? He, God's Word guides us in so many different ways. But while God guides us and takes care of us in the good times, Sometimes it's the hard times, the scary times, that we need that guidance the most. As we look at verse 4, we find the I, I think the more I've thought about this this, this week, and I mean, we, I've, this psalm has been a part of my life for so long, you know, sometimes it's hard to find new things, but I think it's because of the job I'm in, because I, I confront death weekly, sometimes daily. And this is a psalm I read to probably every one of my patients at some time or another. It's this verse, on the one hand, that scares us the most, but that we latch onto the most. Right? Most of us don't really want to think or talk about death. Instead, we would prefer to run away from it. An old legend tells of a merchant in Baghdad who one day sent his servant to the market. Before very long, the servant came back white and trembling and in great agitation said to his master, Master, down in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd and when she turned around, it was death that had jostled me. She looked at me with this threatening gesture, Master, please lend me your horse. I will hasten away to avoid her. I will ride to Samara and there I will hide and death will not find me. And so his master, the merchant, lent him his horse, and the servant galloped away in great haste. But later the merchant went down to the marketplace, and death was still there, and he saw death standing in the crowd. So he went over to her and asked, why did you threaten my servant this morning? Why did you make this threatening gesture? Death turned and replied, that was not a threatening gesture. It was a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him here in Baghdad because I have an appointment tonight with him in Samara. Commenting upon this story, one minister says this. Each of us has an appointment in Samara. But that is a cause for rejoicing, not for fear. If we have put our life in, the, in our trust in the one who alone holds the keys to life and death. You see, David isn't fearless when we come to verse 4 because he's some young punk. David isn't fearless because, yeah, he's taken on lions and bears and he's ruled over the kingdom and he's keen. He isn't like cocky or arrogant. David comes here and in verse 4, he's fearless 
because he's cast his life into God's hands. He's cast his trust upon God. D.A. Carson, who's a well-known research professor in Illinois, says, the shepherd back in those days provided not only care and nurture for the sheep, but leadership, medical attention, and defense against enemies. And so when David confesses here that the Lord is his shepherd, the metaphor includes the idea that he sees God as his king. Because as the sheep pass under the rod in verse 4, your rod and your staff, they comfort me, that Hebrew word is also the same word used as royal scepter. Your royal scepter it comforts me. You see, simply in reading this psalm as a source of comfort in, in times of need, like I've said, many have seen this verse. And again, the, the specter of death is scary. But the promise of faith in Jesus Christ, of knowing that we go with a good shepherd who will guide us through the valley of the shadow of death, that's what we hold on to. That's what we cling to. And that's why we don't have to be fearful then. As one man put it, just as the sheep do not always pasture in green meadows or drink at quiet waters, but at times must walk trickly through the dark and narrow valley where wild beasts and other dangers lurk, so the psalmist affirms that God has guided him through experiences that have put him under trial or brought him to the point of death. And I think for many of us, we could say the same thing of our lives with God. That there have been many times where we have walked through that valley of the shadow of death and he has helped us and guided us. But then the psalm transitions. There's still two more verses. And we move from the shepherd guiding our lives in both the good times and the bad times outside to the protection and provision of the, of the good shepherd inside. He moves from outside to inside. And, and back then, if a shepherd invited you into the tent, especially if he was the chief shepherd, if he was uh, the chief Bedouin kind of person, uh, the Bedouin law of hospitality said back then, if you were invited into the chief shepherd's tent and food was spread before you, that was an indication from that leader that you were guaranteed immunity from any enemy trying to take your life. And so as one man relates, in those circles back then, there was no human protection greater than that provided by the Bedouin or shepherd chief when that happened. Now some believe that this imagery actually connects or relates to David's a life when God amply provided for him, if you remember during the time when Absalom rebelled and took over the kingdom. In 2 Samuel 17, we read, When David came to Manaheim, Shobi son of Nahash from Reba of the Ammonites, and Machir son of Amiel from Lodabar, and Barzillai the Gideite from Rogelim, brought bedding and bowls and articles of pottery. They also brought wheat and barley, flour and roasted grain, beans and lentils, honey and curds, sheep and cheese from cow's milk for David and his people to eat. Kind of a, a nice spread. For they said the people have become hungry and tired and thirsty in the desert. And some believe that part of this, this feast imagery connects back to this time when God provided amply, even in the midst of the chaos going on in David's life. 
But then David continues on. He goes on to say that beyond simply providing the table, beyond simply protecting one from his enemies, David says, God anoints my head with oil. Now, if I was talking to, to little kids, I would say, it wasn't motor oil. Right? That would be really gross, right? Now, it, it probably is some type of anointing, maybe perfumed oil, like we think of you know, those who anointed Jesus in the New Testament. So probably some type of perfumed anointing oil. John Calvin tells us this was only done at the most magnificent feasts. And so as David looks back on his whole life throughout this psalm, as he looks at the good times and the bad times, and he sees how God has guided him and protected him and provided for him, he just kind of, all of a sudden at the end, utters out, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You see, in God's protection and provision of his sheep, if they have come to truly trust and believe in him and are forgiven of their sins, he says, then you are fit to sit at the feast. You are anointed by the Holy Spirit, and I have marked you off. You are not Satan's. You are mine. You are my beloved. I claim you. I protect you. And again, no wonder then David declares, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. When you consider that psalm, when you consider what David writes here, God's guidance through the good times, the bad times, refreshing our souls, giving us rest, leading us through the valley of the shadow of dead, anointing our heads with oil, preparing a feast before us in our presence of our enemies. Don't we see an exact picture of this happening in the life of the good shepherd who was also the lamb led to the slaughter? And where else more beautifully portrayed than at the Lord's Supper while enemies both within and outside, swirled around, waiting to take his life. You see, doesn't the goodness and mercy that we get in our lives come about because he who was the willing lamb led to the slaughter is the good shepherd? That he is also the good shepherd that goes out and pursues his lost sheep and brings them back to give them these blessings. And David was certainly a perfect example of this. How many times did he have to be brought back to God to confess his sins and once more turn his life over to him? And that's why he can write, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And I think as that's true of David's life, it's true of so many of our lives. And so I would ask you, I would challenge you, can you say that last statement as true in your life? Can you say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever? 
And here's why I think that's important. If you've been following along, you'll know that I skipped over just a little bit of verse 3. If you go back to verse 3, the last few words say this. For his name's sake. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Or as I translated it, to testify about his name. You see, at once, this psalm is a psalm of comfort. There's no doubt about that, right? But on the other hand, this is a psalm that is David's confession of faith. But because it's a psalm that brings us comfort, because it's a psalm that is a confession of faith, it is also a psalm to testify about his name. It is a psalm of proclamation. It is to give glory to God and spread the gospel. It is to take your beautiful picture of the cup and know that it's right there at the brim, right? That it's so full, it's ready to overflow. Now, as you were talking about that, the first thing I thought about was because I always fill my coffee cup too full and then it spills, right? And you get a little bit of coffee on the table or whatever and you got to wipe it up. But if you miss a little bit of that coffee, what happens? Eventually, it it dries, right? And it kind of stains the table or the counter. But as you walk by it, what do you get? You get a smell. And if you like coffee, that's a pleasant smell, right? Now think of that. That's what we're supposed to do, right? Some of that, some of that full cup is supposed to kind of spill over, and, and it's supposed to kind of leak, and it's supposed to kind of leave a mark, and it's supposed to kind of smell good, and we're supposed to kind of want that. And that's what we're supposed to do with this psalm, is take it from a psalm of comfort to a psalm of confession to a psalm of proclamation. And that's why today I think Psalm 23 is still one of the most powerful psalms ever written. And so I would ask for you to right now, if this is your confession of faith, if this is your psalm of comfort and you want to proclaim it, I would ask you to stand and proclaim it with me today as we, as we recite it as our psalm of confession, our confession of faith. Please rise if that is what you believe. Please say it with me. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our Father in heaven, Psalm 23 is always a tricky song because we, we know it so well. And like I said earlier, we all have our own imagery and our perfect pictures of what the psalm looks like and what it brings to our minds. God, I hope today that we were able to look at it anew to give you praise and glory. Yes, to find comfort in a psalm that means so much to so many, but also to know like David did that it's a confession of what we really believe about you 
about how you do guide us every day in the good and the bad and the hard times, and, and yet how you provide so amply. And Father, I pray that it would also be one that we would share in proclamation, that we could share it not only to comfort, but to give, to give joy and hope, not just for the dying, but for all those who might hear it, so that they might even come to know you as their Lord and Savior, that it might be almost in a sense like a precursor to giving out the gospel, that it might be, as was said, a cup full to the brim and overflowing. Father, thank you for this time to look at your word. I pray that as we depart from here in a little bit, we would depart with hope, with comfort, with a sense of what we believe, and a sense of going forward to share that. We pray this in Jesus' name.